If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open up to the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 6, that's in your Old Testament there. You get to those Kings and Chronicles and you're almost there. So if you'll flip there to uh, Ezra chapter 6, is where we'll be today in, in God's Word. So we talk about breakthrough celebrated. We're going to talk about joy today and the role of joy in the Christian life. By the way, while you're turning there, uh, after the service today, if this is uh, your first time with us or your, or your first time in quite a while, uh, we have what we call our guest reception. It's uh, as you go out these doors, the last door on your left before you exit the building, room 101. Uh, Kent Miller, our associate pastor, will be there uh, to greet you and just an opportunity for us to get to meet you face to face. This is no bait and switch. We do have a, a gift we'd like to send home with you uh, and just to celebrate uh, the time of you being here this morning. And so if you have a, a moment after the service today, it won't take longer than five minutes to, to get in and out of there. And so if you have a chance to do that, we'd, we'd appreciate that time. And talk, do what? He's throwing things on my plate already this morning. All right. And yeah, next Sunday, if, you, if you're new with us in the last six months or so, uh, new to Corinth in the last six months or so, we, we have next week what we call our party with the pastors. Uh, you wonder what kind of party would a pastor throw? Well, you're going to come find out next Sunday right after this service at noon over in our youth center across the parking lot here. Uh, we'll feed you. We have cake and ice cream, all kinds of things that you would have in a normal party. And uh, just an opportunity for us, again, to get to know you uh, on a personal level and for you to be able to ask any questions that you want of our staff. Uh, that's what that time is about. And just to celebrate together what God's doing uh, in each of our lives. And so that's next Sunday right after this service at, at noon. All right. We good? Okay, good. All right. <laughs> Today, talking about joy. And I was reminded uh, this week, it's, it's real interesting sometimes how God takes a message uh, that, that a pastor is going to have to preach and inflicts that message upon him during the week. And I do mean a f- inflicts, okay? Sometimes you're afflicted with your own message, and that's what happened to me this week as I've been looking at, uh, talking with you this, this morning about joy. Um, I was reminded of the difference this week between joy and happiness. Many of our li- of our, much of our lives is spent in the, the pursuit of happiness. That's what our country is all about, right? Uh, that we're, we are all given the pursuit of happiness. But the problem with the pursuit of happiness is this. Happiness is fleeting. You'll never really catch it because the moment you think you have it, then circumstances arise that remind you that you really don't. But there's something greater we're going to talk about this morning called joy. But I, but I was reminded about the difference between joy and happiness this week. And, and uh, the beginning of my week was a wonderful time. We, and on Tuesday, we celebrated our, our 14th wedding anniversary. And I had, surpri- I had a surprise for my wife. Now, my wife knows that I love surprises my kids. We don't, we don't ever tell our kids anything about where we're going or what we're doing because I love the fa- their faces when they're surprised by something. And so I had this whole trip planned. All she knew is that we were having dinner on our anniversary. That's all that she knew. She didn't know we were really going and doing anything extra special. I mean, it's the 14th anniversary. You know, that's just kind of one of those in-between years. But I had this whole secret trip to Nashville planned. And, I mean, I was doing it up big. I mean, I'm telling you, I was going for husband of the year on this deal. I, had, I took care. <laughs> I took care of the child care, which she always does. I had places for the kids to go. I had, I had gone for the hotel that was a little more expensive than what I would normally want. The one, you know, the one I normally get has the dead bugs dying in the corner and that, you know, that one. But we went a step up from that one to the one that actually has breakfast the next morning. And, 
And I had, I had already picked out three different restaurants that we were going to go to, only one of which had we been to before, so it was a little risky. But by the way, all three of them were wonderful, so if you're looking for some good places to eat in Nashville, I can help you out with that. So I had all this planned out, and, and, and we, it, pulled, it goes together so wonderfully. She had no idea that we were leaving and going anywhere. I dropped the kids off Monday morning, loaded her up in the car, and we were on the way. I had planned out these clues, these wonderful, awesome romantic clues for my wife who loves puzzles that totally stumped her and made her feel stupid. That was a fail, by the way. But other than that, the whole, the whole trip was just wonderful. We had a great time. We enjoyed our anniversary. We ate way too much food and enjoyed our time together, came home, kids had a great time with their friends, and, and everybody was back together. So that was a celebration. Happiness was at an all-time high. I was, I was running for husband of the year. Everything was going well. And then we find out at the end of the week that we were going to have to go to West Kentucky uh, to my great aunt's funeral. She had not been ill, just unexpectedly. When I mean, you say somebody dropped dead, and that's exactly what happened uh, with her Wonderful Christian lady, heard some wonderful stories about her at, at her funeral. Uh, but to say that we experienced uh, the comedy of errors would be um, an understatement for that trip. Friday morning I knew in order for us to make it to the funeral in Benton, Kentucky by 11 a.m., we need to leave this house no later than 8 a.m. That gives us time somewhere along the way to take a potty break and still get there with 10 minutes to spare, get into our seats and, and, and experience the funeral. So 7.56 comes, and I look around. None of the kids have their shoes on. The suitcase is still not in the vehicle. We're all running around trying to get our last-minute things together. We should have packed the night before, but we didn't. And so I go into grouch mode, which is what happens with me when we're needing to be somewhere and we're rushing around, not even close to remotely near ready to go. And by about 8.18, we finally are in the car and headed out the door. So any window of earliness that we had is now gone. And my wife, who uh, sometimes obeys the speed limit, did not. And we drove quicker than I, I didn't look at the speedometer the whole way there because I knew she was flying, but... We drove there, and, and, and we get all the way there. We got there in time for the funeral. We were actually a couple of minutes early. I'm not sure exactly how that happened other than that she was driving. And we get all the way there. The funeral goes on and without a hitch, and it was a wonderful time to, to celebrate her life. And then after the funeral, we had, had, a, had a lunch, and we went to my grandmother's house where we were going to spend the night. We lay the little boy down, our three-year-old, down for a nap, and when he wakes up from his nap, he is making this odd noise that he makes when his asthma is kicking in. And we began to realize that he was having an allergic reaction to something in my grandmother's house. We still don't know yet exactly what it was, the dog, the dust, who knows, whatever it was. We could hear that familiar sound beginning to come from his little body. And so we had this decision to make. And the first thing that my wife asks, great question, is, well, where's the breathing machine? Now, in the Rupert house, you don't leave home overnight without the breathing machine. That is just rule number one. And in this moment that she asked the question, we both knew exactly where the breathing machine was. It was right next to the hearth at our house where we left it that morning because we were rushing around and Dad was grouching and everybody and we were running out the door and we left the one thing that you don't leave the house without. Strike one against Dad of the year here. We left home without the breathing machine. 
So we had this decision to make, and, 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 and a dad who would have redeemed that situation would have piled his family all in the vehicle and left and went home so that his three-year-old, who's beginning to wheeze, could get to his breathing machine to get that taken care of. But no, we decided instead, we hadn't seen my grandmother for quite a while, we're just going to see if he can tough it out. That's not a good idea. When your kid starts wheezing, don't stay in the place where your kid is wheezing, that whatever is causing that wheezing is coming from. But we did, great parents though we are, that we are, and we, and we stayed there as he continued to get worse. And then the next morning we wake up hoping that maybe he'll have gotten over this. No, now it's not just the wheezing, it's this weird, almost sounds like he's laughing noise. If you ever heard my son go through one of his breathing episodes, it sounds like he's laughing, but he's not. And the theme for the day as we're traveling home was him in tears about every five minutes or so saying, I don't feel better. (laughs) Yep, strike two against dad of the year. My grandmother lives in the area of Benton, Kentucky, and to get to Benton from here, the way that we go is you get on what's known as the West Kentucky Parkway. How many of you have ever traveled that lonely road? Okay, now something that we always did as kids when we made that journey when we got on the West Kentucky Parkway, before you got on, we, we get on that, that little purchase parkway there at Draffenville. Before you left Draffenville, you always stopped at the gas station with the Arby's inside and you used the bathroom. Did we stop to use the bathroom? No, of course we didn't because this is one of our lovely family trips. And so instead of stopping to use the bathroom, now we're on the West Kentucky Parkway where there are no exits because no one lives there. And we are traveling along this road in the middle of nowhere, even worse than McQuady. There's nothing there. And the three-year-old who is wheezing in the back and every five minutes saying, Daddy, I don't feel better. And each time he says it, my heart drops. Now he says... I need to go to the potty. (laughs) Great. Well, buddy, there are no potties here. And so mama puts the pedal to the metal even more than it already was, and we're driving as fast as we can. He is weeping at this point, tremors coming through his body, either because he can't breathe or because he has to pee. I don't know which one or both. And now the, the exclamation of, I don't feel better, is now sobbing and crying. I don't feel better. Has to go to the bathroom. And it was at least 20 minutes until we got to the next stop. And I know a good parent probably would have just pulled over on the side of the road. But little three-year-old who is in the midst of potty training has never really done that before. The whole find a bush kind of deal. And so we decided just to press on through, and we get to Central City, we pull in, and we're those parents. You know the ones that I'm talking about. They get out of the car with this screaming child who you think they have just beaten within an inch of his life. His tears are pouring. He is crying out in agony, either over the fact that he can't breathe or he has to pee or both two things together. And we march into this uh, gas station, and he does his, his business. So, if that wasn't bad enough, we get back in the vehicle, still having the breathing issues to make our way from Central City back to here. And when we get back in the vehicle, we're trying to calm him down, help him to kind of get his composure, and we, and we tried to bribe him. Again, good parents, this is what we do, right? Okay, buddy, here's the deal. If you can just make it through, we're, we're only about an hour from home. The way Mama drives, probably 45 minutes. 
if, we would just, if you can just make it to the house, you can watch anything that you want. We, you, and this is a treat for him because he would sit in front of the TV all day long if we would let him. But TV is still a treat for him. You can watch anything you want. We'll give you, you can do anything that you want when you get home. Just, just tough it out and make it through. And so he's still weeping. So, okay, okay, buddy, let's try to redirect here. What would you like to do when we get home? You can have your pick. There's a buffet is open. Whatever you want to do, whatever you want to eat, whatever you want to watch, it's just whatever you want, trying to redirect this kid. And he says, I want to watch Flash with you, Daddy. I know. It's, that's, that's the response I should have had. This is a show we watch. I don't know why we got into watching this show. It's not even a very good show. It's kind of dumb. The plots are really twisted, and the acting is horrible, but he likes The Flash, and so we sit down and watch The Flash together uh, on the days when Dad's being a good dad. But here's where, what Dad's thinking about. And I wasn't expecting to have to go to a funeral on Friday. That's usually the day when I do a lot of my sermon preparation, and we weren't expecting to have all these things going on. And I still got bulletins that haven't been printed because I didn't finish my sermon outline to go in the bulletin. And I still got a lot of things that I need to be doing. So rather than being dad of the year like I should have been and setting all that aside to go home and watch Flash with my son, I find myself sitting in our office in front of my computer having this realization that I should be home watching Flash with JD. But I'm not. And once again, I was reminded that happiness is fleeting. What began as a wonderful week celebrating our wedding anniversary, coming home with, the, with this imaginary husband of the year trophy. Now I'm at the bottom of the pile, the dad who didn't go home and watch Flash with his wheezing son who he made wait to go to the bathroom for 20 minutes in the car. I didn't do what a good dad should do, and so I'm here in the office just brokenhearted over what in the world has happened to what began as such a glorious week. How many of you have ever been in that spot before? How did I get here after a week that I just had? This is nothing new for us. The people of Israel 2,500 years ago experienced the same kinds of trials and temptations that we experience. And as we look to them today in Ezra chapter 6, let's remind ourselves of what we looked at last week in Ezra chapters 4 and 5 that all around them was this opposition. God had called them out to do this amazing work of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding this holy city of Jerusalem. He had given them this clear call and this work to do, and it empowered them for the work. And then they spent 10 years running away from the things of God, not doing the work of God, working on their own homes, building their own kingdoms, while what God had called them to do just set to the side and finished. Let me give you a little bit of a timeline to help you to understand. Again, as you read the book of Ezra, it can get a little confusing because Old Testament writers, they really weren't concerned with chronology. When we think about history, we think about it in terms of, well, this happened, and that caused this to happen, cause and effect, an order of events and a timeline. That's how we think about history. But the Old Testament writers were really not concerned with chronology. They wrote, wrote much more thematically. They were concerned with teaching particular lessons to the future generations, and so they would, they would group events together in, in themes, like the chapters 4 and 5, the theme was this opposition. And so he draws from a couple different generations of Israelite experience to talk about the, the, how God deals with opposition that arises against his people. 
But he shifts in this particular chapter, in chapter 6, not talking about opposition anymore, now talking more about celebration. And again, he's going to draw from a, couple of different, from a couple of different generations there. All that's happening here in the book of Ezra kind of began in the year 586 B.C. That is a key moment in the history of the people of Israel. That was the year in which Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in, in the world at that time, he was the, he was the most powerful leader, uh, the, the king of the Babylonians. He marched into Jerusalem with his army and utterly destroyed the place. And the worst case scenario happened when he tore down the temple stone from stone, leveling the place that represented the presence of God among his people. And the Israelites that were left alive were carried off into captivity. And it says, And there by the rivers of Babylon they sat and they wept as they remembered all that they had lost. 586 B.C. 538 B.C. We fast forward some 50 years and we find that God raises up a king known as Cyrus. King Cyrus of the Persians who had conquered the Babylonians. King Cyrus rises up and according to the prophetic word of God, Isaiah had spoken in the 700s BC, 200 years prior, that God was going to use a man named Cyrus to deliver his people from exile, from captivity, and that they would return under the command of Cyrus to rebuild the temple. It was all the promise of God. And God comes through, 538 B.C., raises up Cyrus, and Cyrus makes a decree that they can return home to rebuild what would become the second temple. Just a few short years later, 530 B.C., there's a new king on the scene, not Cyrus anymore, but Cambyses, and they got distracted from the work. Opposition arose against that work, and the temple work ceased for 10 long years. That's what we looked at last week. 10 long years that they moved away from the things that God had given them to do until 520 BC, another king comes on the scene, King Darius, and he orders, as we'll see here in chapter 6, the work to be renewed. And just five short years later, the breakthrough happened. You, when we talk about breakthrough in this series, I need you to understand that the key breakthrough that happened in the generation of Ezra was this the temple was rebuilt. And I know that for us, that doesn't bear the weight that it did for Old Testament Israel. But you've got to understand, that temple represented for them the very presence of God among his people. And when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, what they saw in that moment was, God has abandoned us. God's turned his back on us. God no longer loves us, no longer wants us. And they were left to the Babylonians for 70 long years until this return and this restoration, 515 B.C., the new temple is completed. With that timeline in your mind, hopefully that helps a little bit with what we're going to look at. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word this morning? We're going to read all of Ezra chapter 6. so It's a little lengthy, but there's some really good stuff here I want you to see. So it says, and then Darius the king made a decree. This is the year 520 B.C. He made a decree and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. In Ekbatana, the capital that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which was written a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundation be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits. 
with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Here's the response. And now therefore, Tatna, governor of the province beyond the river, Shether Bozani and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests of Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled upon it and his house shall be made a dunghill. In other words, don't mess around with this, guys. Serious consequences will come. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who shall put a hand out to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. And so what was their response? Verse 13. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatna, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shetherbozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. By the way, that would be March the 12th, 515 B.C. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests and their divisions and the Levites and their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, they returned, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful. And had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. You can be seated. Father, as we talk this morning about joy, Lord, would you remind us of Nehemiah 8.10 that says to us, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Even in days of grief and sadness, 
even in times of angst and suffering. There is a joy that rises above our circumstantial happiness. There is a joy that goes deeper and abides and will remain for the children of God. For those who trust in Christ. Those who look forward to the unfading crown of glory that will be given to those who walk faithfully with Christ. And Lord, this morning we make this prayer for ourselves. This David prayed, Lord, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation and grant us a willing spirit to sustain us. Would you do that work in us today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you this morning three things here from Ezra chapter 6, and, and I want to give you some, uh, some take-home ideas as we talk about this idea of celebration and joy, and as we consider how different the eternal joy of God is from our circumstantial happiness. First of all, in these first few verses there, uh, we see the command of the king. The king that's mentioned here is Darius. And again, the reminder is that there had been several decrees by these kings. It began with Cyrus in 538. But Cyrus's decree had never been fully carried out. They had started into the, the beginnings of the temple, laying the foundation, and they celebrated the, the restoration of the foundation of the temple, and then they lost their way as opposition rose up, and as temptation drew them away, they turned away from the work of the Lord, and they began to focus on their own homes, on their own problems. And then God raises up this prophet named Haggai, and right after him, another prophet named Zechariah. If you look at the end of your Old Testament, the last three books, Two of those books are Haggai and Zechariah, and it's the messages that these two prophets of God brought during that time to return the people back to a focus on building this house of God known as the temple. Basically, Haggai says to them, you guys have been focused for 10 years on building your own houses while the house of God remains a ruin. And what has it gotten you? You're still hungry you're still struggling. There's still enemies on every side. While you've been building your own kingdom and the kingdom of God has lain in ruins as symbolized by this temple laying in ruins, while you've been focused on your own kingdom, building your own glory, what has it really accomplished for you? It's time to get back to the work of the Lord. And so God raises up this king named Darius who issues a, a second decree. Let's finish this out. Let's continue and finish out the temple. Now, I, wanna, I want you to understand very clearly. When God uses Cyrus, when God uses Darius, and he also refers here to the king that would come in the next generation, Artaxerxes, the king who ruled during Nehemiah's time when the walls were being rebuilt. Remember, Ezra is not concerned with chronology. He's speaking thematically here. When God raises up these pagan kings. Understand, these kings did not devote themselves wholeheartedly to the one true and living God. They would worship any God out there. And in fact, their motivations, as revealed here in these verses, show 
that the only reason they were interested in rebuilding this temple was so that the people of Israel might pray to them, for them to their God that they might be blessed. They were doing this with a number of peoples. They were ready to, to scratch the itch of any people who might pray to any God that they might be blessed. He says that they might pray for the king and his sons. We read that a few minutes ago. And so don't think that Darius is some wonderful philanthropist who just really desired the good of the Jewish people. No, in his heart was gain for himself. First, the gain of the pleasure of the peoples he ruled over, that everyone would like him, but also that they would pray for him. Believing that surely at some point, if, we, if, I, if I scratch the itch of enough of these gods, surely I'll be blessed and I'll be able to rule longer and everything will go well with me. You see, the prosperity gospel that is prolific in our age, it's been around for a long time. Darius believed wholeheartedly in the prosperity gospel that God wants me to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And if I do what God likes, he'll make sure that I get what I want. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours is the, is the theology the prosperity gospel. So don't think for a minute that, that God was calling upon godly kings to do this work. No, he was calling upon selfish, self-centered, all-about-me type men, but he was using them to accomplish his purposes. Proverbs 21.1, you might want to jot that verse down. Proverbs 21.1 says that the heart of a king is like water in the hands of God, and he turns it Whichever way that he wishes. It's this picture of if you were to put a drop of water in your hand, you can tilt your hand any way you want to, and you direct the course of that droplet of water. And then Proverbs 21.1 says, that's what the heart of a king is like. And you've got to understand, these guys, Cyrus and Darius, Nebuchadnezzar, the, all these kings... These were the most powerful men in the world at that time. They were the world leaders. They were at the very top of the political food chain. Nobody stood in their way. When it says Darius made a decree and his lackeys carried it out with all diligence, do you know why that happened? Because if you didn't carry out the decree of the king, it was off with your head, no questions asked. The king said jump, and you didn't say how high, you just started jumping. And there's this picture here of how there was a greater king. I'm talking about the command of the king here. I need you to understand, I'm not talking this morning about Cyrus. I'm not talking about Darius. I'm not talking about the next generation with Artaxerxes. But what Ezra was pointing out here was you need to understand that all of these kings and all of the rulers of today, they are under the sovereign control of Almighty God. Now, church, I know how it is. We watch the news. We just see decisions being made that will radically alter the culture in which we live. And it appears so often that things are just going from bad to worse. But church, you need to understand, when you read this book, you begin to see that in the last days, before the return of Christ, that's exactly what the church should expect. Not that things are going to get better and better. No, that things are going to go from bad to worse before they get better. They will not get better until Christ comes back to reclaim his people and to bring about the fulfillment of his kingdom. But how different would it be for us if rather than complaining about the rulers of our age, if we began to see them as simply a little drop of water in the hand of Almighty God? 
And that every decision, every law that is passed, every decree that is made, everything that they, every speech that is made, every principle they carry out is one more little cog in the great plan of Almighty God. It changes the way that you understand your life. Because if God is directing the heart of the king to accomplish his purposes, then that which is true of the greater is true of the lesser. That means that God is going to accomplish his purposes. The Bible says that there will come a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do that through gritted teeth. But may we seek to be among those who will do it out of loving obedience to our Savior. There's two ways to view history that are revealed in the book of Ezra. Some view history as a matter of happenstance. Things happen and there's no real necessary reason. Things just happen. And there's others that begin to view history because of this word. Begin to view history and all the events of our lives down to the mundane, the tiny things in our lives that begin to understand history in light of a sovereign God who has complete control over all things. That there is nothing that escapes his notice. There is nothing that happens outside of his plan. Even the worst things that happen in our lives, he can use according to his purpose. We're going to talk more about that before we finish today. Understanding the greatest command of the kings here in Ezra 6, it was not Cyrus's command. It was not Darius's command. It was the command of Almighty God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords had made a decree. The temple would be rebuilt and so you can mark it down. And it happens. Verse 13, pick up there with me. The completion of the temple. It says, Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, these leaders... Tatnai, Shetherbozanai, these, these leaders who had basically been playing tattletale on the Israelites. They had come into Jerusalem, seen them rebuilding the temple, and they had sent word to the king saying, do you know what those Jews are doing? They're down there rebuilding a temple, and you need to look into this. You need to stop them from doing this because they're going to cause trouble for you, king. And Darius goes and looks, and he discovers that that decree to rebuild the temple had happened two king generations ago, back with Cyrus. And he says, it's time to get this work done. And here's what he does. Here's the amazing thing that God makes happen in order for the temple to be restored. The same people that were standing in opposition to the work of God are now funding the very work they opposed. Look, look at with me at verse 13. So they did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered, and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, and they finished the building by decree of the God of Israel, and by the decree of these three kings, and the house of God was finished on the third month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. That was March the 12th, at 515 B.C. And you just read that paragraph, and you, and you miss an important aspect of the work. If you rewind just a little bit, if you rewind just a little bit, look at verse 8. I make a decree, Darius says, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these leaders, these elders, these leaders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay 
from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. What's that mean? He's saying to these governors, you're to take the taxes that you've collected from these Jews and from the people of this region. You're to take the money that you collected that's support, that you've been lining your pockets with, and you yourselves are to pay, not just for the rebuilding of the temple, as costly as that would have been, not just for this multi-million dollar rebuilding project. He says, but also you're going to provide for every sacrifice needed for every day thereafter. Just take that in for a moment. It's one thing, it's one thing for the enemies of God to be told as these were, stay away from Jerusalem, let them alone, let them finish their work. It's one thing for God to look at our enemies and say, hands off, leave them alone. That happens throughout the scriptures in various places. As God's people are seeking to be faithful to his word, God rises up as this warrior in various places and says, you better leave my people alone. Don't mess with my people. But here God goes an extra measure. Here God goes an extra measure and says, you know, not just are you going to leave my people alone, but you're going to pay for the work that I've called them to do. And I don't know about you, but that shows the glory of our God. I mean, only our God can take enemies and turn them into the very people who are funding his work. I mean, that is just an an unbelievable moment, and yet Ezra is proclaiming this, saying this is the faithfulness of our God. This is something worth celebrating. So let's look at their celebration, verse 19 uh, through verse 22. The people begin to celebrate. The temple is done. The promise of God has been fulfilled. We have so much to celebrate And he begins there in verse 19. And so on the 14th day of the first month, that was a month after the temple was finished. On the 14th day of the first month, they returned returned to do what? To keep the Passover. Now first you have to know what the Passover is. The Passover was was one of seven different feasts that were celebrated throughout the Jewish calendar. God had given them seven different feasts, and, and three of those feasts were what we call pilgrim feasts. That means that three times a year, all the Jews would make a pilgrimage. They would all gather together at Jerusalem, where the, the temple was the center of activity. They would gather there, and what was their purpose? Well, I can guarantee you that it, it was not to exchange Christmas presents. It was not to hunt Easter eggs. Here was their purpose especially on those three times a year when they gathered at Jerusalem, but even all seven of those feasts that happened every year when the people were being faithful to their God, by the command of God, he had commanded them to celebrate these feasts. And the common theme throughout those feasts was this, we're going to celebrate what our God has done for his people. We're going to celebrate what our God has done for us. Seven times a year. That's a lot of holidays. Most of these lasted for at least a week, as this one did. Passover was was one overnight kind of event, but then right after that they celebrated what we see here is the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was one of those three pilgrim feasts where they they celebrated. What were they celebrating? Passover was a celebration of what happened back in the book of Exodus. You remember the people were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and God, by miraculous signs and wonders, delivered them from Egypt. You'll remember the last night they spent in Egypt, God had told them, here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to send the angel of death throughout Egypt. And the angel of death is going to kill every firstborn son in the land. But here's what you're supposed to do. I want you to kill a lamb, every household. Kill a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and wipe it upon the doorposts of your home. Wipe it upon the doorposts of your home. And for every home where the blood of the lamb is upon the doorpost, the angel of death will pass over. That's where the word comes from. The angel of death will pass over you. But for every house that does not have the blood of the lamb upon the doorposts, the firstborn child of that household will be struck dead because the, Israel, because the Egyptians have not allowed you to go. It was a sign of the power of God. And the very thing that God said happened. And for generations and generations after that, even down to this day, though in a different way, Jewish people still celebrate the Passover. The Passover, which reminded them of the faithfulness of their God. The Passover, which reminded them, we have so much to celebrate. You think about the day in which Ezra is speaking of here. They had just come through a second exodus. An exodus out of Babylon that was so similar to the exodus they had experienced in Egypt. And they were reminded all over again of the faithfulness of their God and how no nation would be able to stand against them because their God was greater. And they were celebrating the good works of God all over again. There was much cause for celebration. And church, I just want to say this is, this is really simple today. But I don't know that any of us have have perfected the simplicity about what I'm about to say to you. Just as the, they did, we have so much to celebrate. And I don't know if your tendency is like mine. I'm thinking about that moment that I had last night when I'm sitting staring at my computer screen when I should have been home watching The Flash with my three-year-old and I'm just lamenting a weekend that had gone awry. And you're having this pity party, at least I do. And I'm thinking about all the things that should have happened in the last 24 hours that didn't. And how, why did I forget the breathing machine? And why didn't we pee before we got on the parkway? And I mean, all the things that are going through your mind. And I'm staring at my notes and I'm seeing the celebration of the people. And I'm reminded that even on the worst of days, we have so much to celebrate. Let me share with you five things real quickly this morning. Five reasons that even on the worst of days, you can celebrate the good work of God in your life. If you are following Jesus Christ, I want to tell you, you have every reason to celebrate. And I want to say something else. If you are not in Christ this morning, if you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, I want to give you the bad news today. If you are not in Christ, you have no reason to celebrate. I don't care whose birthday it is, what holiday it is, I don't care how good you feel. At the end of the day, if you are in Christ, you have every reason to celebrate. If you are not in Christ, you have no reason to celebrate because it's all about your eternal perspective. Well, let me show you a few things in our calls for celebration. First of all, our salvation. Again, David, he, he prays to the Lord, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And I believe that ought to be a regular prayer for us as the people of God. Why? Because we forget. 
We forget the joyous reality of the celebration that was bought for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. When he was crucified for our sins, we were forgiven. He died so that we could be made alive. And if that was our only reason for celebration, that would be enough from now until he takes us home to glory. Luke chapter 15 talks about the joy of salvation and the celebration that goes along with it. If if you can turn there in your Bible, you'll see three parables in Luke 15. The first one's the parable of the lost sheep. You you remember this one. There's the shepherd. He he goes out with his sheep, a hundred strong, and he loses one of them. And Jesus said, and this shepherd, because he's a good shepherd, he leaves the 99 sheep and he goes after the one sheep and he finds it. And then something happens. We'll come back to that. And he goes right on to the next parable. There's this woman, and she has ten coins, and she loses one of the coins, and so she wrecks her house, sweeps everywhere, trying to figure out what happened to my coin, and when she finds it, something happens. We'll come back to that. And then he goes on to the next parable, and and there there was a a man who had two sons, and one of those sons went astray, and he left home, and he he, he sold sold out all the father's inheritance and riotous living, and and he wasted all of his money, and he comes home with his tail between his legs, and his father does something that I want you to see. That shepherd, look at these verses. When the shepherd found the lost sheep, it says that he laid that sheep on his shoulders, rejoicing. Take in that word, rejoicing. And in the very next verse, it says he calls his friends and his neighbors and he says, come rejoice with me because I found what was lost. And then the lady with the coins, she finds her coin and says, and she called together all her friends and her neighbors and she said, rejoice with me. For I have found the coin that I had lost. I found what was lost, and rejoicing erupts. And then in, this, in the parable we call the prodigal son, the, the older son is so mad. His younger brother has come home, and he's, he's wasted all his father's money, and the, and the older son is so mad that they're having a party. But here's the response of the father. Dad says it was, it was fitting. It was necessary. We had to celebrate and be glad. Why? Because this this brother of yours, he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and he is found. And throughout Luke chapter 15, there's this refrain that keeps going off from the lips of Jesus. And he says, you need to remember that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the many who need not repent. And church, that ought to be true for us. We ought to be a people who rejoice when the lost get found. And I'm not just saying when somebody walks an aisle and prays a prayer. I'm saying when lives are radically transformed, when addiction is done away with, when marriages are restored, When there is a heart change that results in a radical life change. When the one who is spending his life building his own kingdom to his own destruction is now building the kingdom of God, the response of the church ought to be celebration. And I'll just say in my own heart, and I believe in the life of our church, there's a place where we need more celebration. We need more celebration because it's good for us, but also because, folks, this is the command of God. It was not arbitrary that God had commanded seven feasts, seven celebrations a year. I'd say we need at least that many. 
First, our salvation, but secondly, second cause for the church's celebration is our sanctification. Now, this is one of those $10 Bible words that we're going to spend some time with in a later message. But for now, I want you to understand this much about sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which God makes us into what he already sees us to be. Just take that in. You may want to jot that down. Sanctification is the process by which God makes us into what he already sees us to be. You see, when you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus Christ, there's this amazing thing that happens. The filthy rags of your sinful condition are stripped away and God does not leave you naked. Instead, he clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. This beautiful white robe that the people of God are given to wear, the righteousness of Christ, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And from that moment forward, God sees only the righteousness of Christ in you. And at the same time, though, Paul says there's still this struggle that goes on in the flesh. There's still these moments when I'm not the man that I want to be and I find myself doing things that I don't want to do and I don't find myself doing the things that I want to do. God's put this new heart in me and yet I'm still struggling between the flesh and the spirit and there's all this mess going on and temptations are still real and sins still happen and there's still the struggle. But you see, all the while, even through the struggle, God is working this amazing process of sanctification in our lives where he is making us into exactly what he already sees us to be. We call it conforming us to the image of Christ. He's making us more and more like Jesus through everything that happens. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1. I want to to share these scriptures with you. I, I love this chapter. It's come up so many times recently in my Bible reading. The Apostle Paul gives them this prayer. He says, may you be strengthened. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with what? With joy. That word almost doesn't seem to fit there until you read on. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered. Here's the cause of our joy. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In that last verse, he gives us three reasons for celebration. He says, first of all, here's what God has done for you. He has transferred you. You were living headlong in the kingdom of darkness. You were all about your sin and and the consequences were weighing down upon you. And you would have been separated from God forever until he came down and he dwelled in the place which you deserve to be. He took your cross, he took your death, and he gave you life. He gave you forgiveness. He transferred you. That's cause for celebration. He doesn't stop there. He says not only that, but he says in him we have redemption. That means he bought you. That means he looked at us as worthless as we were in our sinful condition and he considered us worthy to be bought. And there's a place in which none of us were. But in his grace and in his sovereignty, he looked at those who were in Christ and he said, I want you. And so he purchased us with the blood of his son. But not just that, he says, and also the forgiveness 
of our sins, which we're going to talk more about before we finish this morning. He says, we have the forgiveness of our sins. The slate's been wiped clean. The, those, those filthy rags have been removed from us, and now we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and God is working this amazing plan of sanctification, and we ought to celebrate. But then we come to the third cause for celebration, and it's one that we really don't care for, but it's the one that God uses the most in the process of sanctification third cause for celebration is suffering. And you go, well, that's just nuts. Who celebrates suffering? People walking with Jesus do. Remember what happened with those early apostles when they were brought up on charges for preaching the gospel the first time of many? And then they were given the 39 lashes, which it was 39 because they had figured out in those days that 40 lashes would often kill a person. So they would give you 30. That's what we talk about when we say beat you within an inch of your life. That's what they were doing. They were given the 39 lashes, and when they were released, it says, and they went away rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure the folks who were standing outside the jail that day as those 12 men were released and they're jumping up and down and celebrating together thought, those guys are one crayon short of a box. I mean, they have lost it. Who comes out after being beat within an inch of your life and is celebrating? That doesn't make any sense. But you see, church, here's what our God does. In Christ, suffering is never senseless. Once again, I've got to give you the bad news. If you are apart from Christ today, your suffering will never find meaning. Suffering of those apart from Christ is utterly meaningless because it will just lead to more suffering. In fact, the Bible says that for, for those who are apart from Christ, there will be an eternity of suffering. Suffering will just lead to more suffering, to more suffering if this is all there is, or if all we have to look forward to is an eternal hell, then the writer of Ecclesiastes says, well, then you might as well just live it up, because this is all you got. You might as well keep journeying after with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength in pursuit of happiness, because that's all you're going to get, just a few fleeting moments. Because of Christ, we have something greater. And even suffering accomplishes God's will for us. First Peter chapter 4. Peter says, Beloved, he's talking to the believers. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. This is the first time he says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also, here it is again, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. When was the last time you took an insult as a blessing? Only in Jesus is that possible. Because the spirit of glory and of Christ rests upon you. So we can rejoice in our sufferings. We can rejoice in those days when the wheels fall off the bus and everything seems to be going astray. If for no other reason we can look at it and we can say, and Mark Lowry, Christian comedian, said his favorite verse was the one that says, this too shall pass. We're looking forward to a greater day. 
But even in the greatest of days that we have on this earth, Mark Lauder reminds us, this too shall pass, and there's probably a worse day coming after that. One day you have your anniversary, three days later, the wheels fall off the bus. Okay, and you're trapped in a car for three hours with a crying kid who can't breathe and needs to pee. And I know we're, we're laughing about that, but at the end of the day, every circumstance of our lives, if you are in Christ Jesus, every circumstance of your life, every ounce of suffering that you endure is meant to gain an eternal weight of glory in your life. He will not waste your sufferings. Your God loves you too much to waste your sufferings. Number four, we rejoice in sins removed. I wish I had time to spend more here, but I just want to share with you some of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 10. He said to his apostles when he sent them out on this missionary journey, the amazing things happened. People were healed. Demons were cast out. All, things were, all awesome things were happening. They're coming back, and they are like, man, this is awesome. And Jesus says, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And if he'd stopped right there, they would have been like, like yes. But he says this, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. In other words, don't rejoice just in the fact that you could do some powerful displays. He says, but rather, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's cause for rejoicing, folks. And why is it that our names can be written in heaven? Because your sins have been blotted out. When you were still in your sin, there was no hope of your name being written in heaven. There was no hope of heaven for you. But when your sins were blotted out by the precious blood of God's one and only Son, your sins were forgiven, your slate was wiped clean, and you are a new creation in Christ, and so you have cause for rejoicing. And finally today, and I'll leave you here, we rejoice over saints redeemed. I love the writings of the Apostle Paul. And one reason I love the writings of the Apostle Paul is because there is not one letter of Paul's where he doesn't rejoice over brothers and sisters in Christ that had added to, augmented, helped him in his ministry for the Lord. He is constantly praising, not just the churches as a whole, but he calls out individuals by name and says, I want to give thanks for Epaphroditus. I want, to, I want to give thanks for, for these brothers that, that God has put around me. He is constantly celebrating the work of God in the lives of the believers around him. He is so thankful for the church, so thankful for the people of God. He sees it not as a burden, but as a blessing. And he is constantly encouraging them, saying, I thank my God for you. And church, I just want to say that to you this morning. I thank my God for you. I thank my God for the little letters that I receive every once in a while that just are encouragement to me. I keep a file of them in my desk drawer. Many of you in this room, just little cards that you've sent, just words of encouragement, scriptures that you've shared with me. I thank my God for you. I thank my God for you, those of you that make it a point every Sunday to make sure I don't leave this building before you wrap your arms around my neck and give me a big hug. I thank my God for you. I thank my God for those of you who come to me with questions 
And, you know, and so many times you, you, you come in this way and you say, oh, I don't really want to burden you with this. And you don't understand that, that because of the way that God has created me, that's one of the joys of my ministry. I, I love to tackle those, those hard questions and for us to wrestle together in the Word of God that our, fi- that our faith might grow in Him. I, I thank my God for you and for those questions. And I thank my God for you when you allow me to enter into your times of suffering and you ask me to pray for you. And you allow me to ask you to pray for me. I thank my God for the fact that I know that there are many of you in this room that pray for me on a daily basis. And that is the only reason that I'm able to continue doing what I do. Because in my own strength, apart from the power of God being displayed in this place among us, it's, it's going to fall apart, folks. I thank my God for those of you that pray for me day in and day out. We have much to celebrate as the saints of God. And I want to show you, as we finish up today, this final picture. Revelation 19. The Apostle John says, Then I heard. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Just close your eyes for a moment as I read this and, and imagine this picture. He said, I heard, I heard this voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters. Imagine the sound of Niagara Falls in your ears, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And they were crying out to God, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And would you picture that scene? That scene alone can provide enough joy to carry you through the trials of this life, knowing that one day you will be invited to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where you, as a part of His bride, will be able to enjoy the presence of the Lord, not just for a day, not just for an hour, but for an eternity. That will be the first of days without end where there will be no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain. All those things will have passed away. There will no, be no more a, a pursuit of circumstantial happiness. That will be child's play in comparison with the glory of God that is being revealed. And you will see your Savior. The Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world, now crowned the King of glory, beckoning you to draw near, to abide in His presence forever, and to share with all the saints in unspeakable, never-ending joy. And Father, with this vision in our minds, and I pray even more deeply in our hearts, would you cause, as the overflow of our hearts from the mouths of your people, to come 
rejoicing. As we share this final song together this morning, God, would you cause us to see that above and beyond our circumstances lies the never-failing God whose unfailing love will guide us through all the most difficult dangers and toils and snares. And in reality, you already see the end from the beginning and you are sanctifying us and you have saved us and you are drawing us to yourself and you have given us work to do in joy and all of these things. We praise you, our God, because you are worthy and because you have commanded us to celebrate. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and share this last song. Would you be renewed today in your celebration of who you are in Christ, of what He has done for you, one of those things there on that list that struck your heart today and you say, you know what, I'd almost forgotten about that. Maybe you're praying today, God, would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? However God would lead you this morning, let this be a time of rejoicing as we worship the Lord here at the end of this service. And may we go away, the overflow of our hearts being, my God, He has filled me with joy that it erupts from our mouths into the lives of others throughout this week. Let's sing this song together as we prepare to close our service today.